Welcome to the Opera Box Score podcast for Monday, March 7. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. On this podcast, my co-host Oliver Macho Camacho talks to Catherine O'Shaughnessy, conductor and founder of Windy City Opera. They give you the inside story into her life as an artist. But first, we investigate a story hot off the presses. The Floating Opera Company, a small outfit here in Chicago, recently posted an audition notice for its upcoming production of Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, which invited musical theater singers to join opera singers in auditioning. Many of those musical theater folk took umbrage at the $15 audition fee, and then they took to social media to voice their displeasure. Plus, we've got this week's opera headlines in our TKO segment, which pits two singers head-to-head in selections from Britain's opera Billy Budd. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. And what's more, on our show, you get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Tell us what your opinion is on our Chalk Talk segment or Get in the Ring and Referee, our TKO segment. Opera Box Score is now. All right. Well, we have quite a show for you today. Oliver Camacho, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, George. <laughs> that was to the point. I'm glad to hear it. Giovanna, Jacques. I'm good. It's beautiful outside. I'm well. I shouldn't say I'm good. That's not know, grammatically crazy correct. weather for... It's, it's great. Yeah. It smells like memories. It's been a week for me. I will say that. I'm getting ready for this trip to Germany about more which later on the podcast. And of course, we had this huge drama blow up this week here in Chicago. Yeah. So um, yesterday I took to Facebook. I'm never on Facebook. And uh, yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> and I saw this huge kerfuffle uh, over an announcement on uh, theater in Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's what the website theaters called, yeah. in Chicago. Or? Theater in Chicago. Theater in Chicago, which is a place where um, you know audition uh, notices are posted, and uh, a local opera company, the Floating Opera Company, posted an audition notice for their Sweeney Todd, and it goes through a description of what roles are looking to cast. And uh, at the bottom of the posting is uh, they're announcing that they're charging $15 for the live audition. And for what exactly is that $15? They say uh, for the, you know, to cover the overhead of the space rental and most especially the very capable pianist that they're hiring. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> parentheses, excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm glad it's not a crummy one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this posting was being ridiculed in Facebook and I saw it shared like 25 times. Uh, and all these musical theater people were, uh, you know, tagging onto it, um, piling onto it, talking about how ridiculous that is and how, you know, making fun of a company that would post something like this for a mostly equity audience. And it was brutal. It was posts. awful. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. These yeah. comments are the stupidest thing. Like the Republican, the Republican yeah, the, debates second are the, second. The stilettos like, came out. <laughs> they were very sharp. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I, I mean, it made me feel bad for a floating opera company, and not that I have anything to do with them, but I do know some people who performed, and like I said, I saw their Don Giovanni, and I thought it was very creative, and you know, they're a fledgling opera company; they're just like two years old, right? Mm-hmm. And they are trying to do something unique, and they are giving singers a chance to sing an opera in the original language with supertitles, with uh, a small orchestra, with set design, with you know. Uh, you know, a, a, an interesting space. So it's a valuable uh, credit to put on your resume. And we as well, that, that's the basic problem that, that happened with this thing. So, so there's actually a number of things that have to be unpacked here. So the first one is, should the floating opera company be doing Sweeney Todd? Yes or no, Javon? Yeah, they should. Absolutely. They can do whatever the hell they want to do. I mean, this is the If artist- you can afford the rights to perform it. Yeah. <laughs> charging $15. <laughs> yeah. I mean... <laughs> They're, they're, well, they're, they, I'm sure they've got fundraising campaigns. Like, this $15 isn't going to fund the entire project. Mm. But they, I mean, of course, yeah, do it. Do whatever the hell yeah, you there's, want. Yeah, there's operaticness in Sweeney Todd, even yeah. though I think Stephen Sondheim never intended it to be performed by opera singers. <laughs> so then the second question is, should the opera company have opened up the casting call to musical theater people, or should they have just kept it in opera land? Oliver. I feel like they should not mix with the MT people. Now we know why. You know, they're not the same level of professionalism, and they're clearly, not as, and they're geez. not as hungry as we are. Like we are starving, we're thirsty for experience, and it just seems that you know, if you get through, you know, Northwestern musical theater program or whatever, 
you have kind of a chip on your shoulder <laughs> and, right. you, and, you, and you've paid your equity fees and whatever, you, you expect certain things that we don't take for granted at all. Although as- from the director's mm-hmm. point of view, you want the best people to be in the show. So from my opinion, I feel like they actually were doing everybody a, a service by saying – Let's have musical theater people audition. Let's have opera people audition. I think it's great. I mean, they're trying to break down the barriers between all the segregated art forms, you know, in but Chicago. If they're especially. really going to get a cast that is cohesive, the person who uh, gets cast should be should know the opera community. Shouldn't be a person who is just coming only from musical theater and joining this cast of you know opera people. That's it's like oil and water. Yeah, but I mean, good for them for trying. Yeah. Good for them for for trying to get out. I know there people who ride. Do you know people. Kelly Harrington? I've heard the name, okay. but I don't know her. Yeah, she rides. She kind of is in both lanes, you know. So yeah. I mean, there are people out there that who who do both, you know. And and how else would you find those people if you didn't post on a musical theater website as no. well as an opera website? So then the next part of the challenge is this: is helping us understand why the musical theater folk are so upset in a way that the opera folk are not. Well, maybe you can explain it better because of the union thing. Like what is equity and what, what are the minimums and what, you know, what do you get for being an equity member and why is it that MT kids would never expect to pay? Well, it's true. There are two different unions. One is the American Guild of Musical Artists, which takes care of opera singers. And the other one is the Actors' Equity Association, or Equity, which takes care of the actors and musical theaters. And the dues are different. The expectations are different. And clearly, it has led to a real conflict in what is expected in an audition situation like this. Well, it's... it's just really a bummer because how else are you going to, I mean, all of these, if you look at this status, I mean, it's going to be posted on our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. If you look at these comments, it's so ignorant. It's mean. It's mean. Yeah. But I mean, I'll just say that what maybe they don't understand is um, in an opera audition, there's some very difficult repertoire that is to be played. Um, and uh, this audition notice actually doesn't say you have to bring an opera aria, but I would say Sondheim already is difficult, um, rhythmically, and it's hard to put that stuff together without collaborating first. Uh, but speaking about opera in general, there are, you know, opera excerpts that are reductions of a score, like a Strauss score, for example, which is really hard to get under your fingers if you don't know the piece. I mean, you're not going to play all those notes, you know? So uh, the person who can play opera auditions is a very unique commodity and a very valuable one. And I'm happy to have somebody who can do it and only be expected to pay $15 as opposed to bringing my own, which might mean having to pay them for a minimum of an hour or even longer. Which is usually 60 and above. Yeah, to drag them to to the audition and to wait outside with me and whatnot, you know. I do think that the floating opera company made a mistake in specifying what that $15 was for. They could have left it as just like, this is the audition fee. And by saying it's for an excellent accompanist and to pay for the room, it starts to invite, in my opinion, questioning and querying which could have been handled on more of a case-by-case basis i wonder if they might want that one back well they're new and let's just say that they are gonna have these growing pains you know it maybe was a slightly naive thing to post but the intention was that we want to pay a wonderful musician he we want to pay your colleagues and i think most singers in good good faith want want that to be the case you know I mean, that makes me much happier to shell out $15. I would like to take a moment to uh, give a shout out to Mario Mazzetti. uh, (laughs) We're calling out names now? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Who said, what production of Sweetie Todd needs two all caps entire contrasting songs and all caps a monologue? Mario, there are some places where you do have to sing the entire song. So uh, this morning, I reached out to Daniel Grambau, who's the general director of um, Floating Opera Company, and I just wanted to take his statement. And I'm going to summarize here. I'm not going to quote him word for word, but uh, he said, first of all, that the verbiage for this posting was originally created uh, with the opera singer in mind, uh, and he would not be surprised at the expense and understand who the opera singers would not be surprised at the expense uh, and the difficulty of collaborating on such a difficult score. Um. Boy, I really botched that one. The Floating Opera Company, second point, is a new enterprise providing opportunities for local singers and enriching, enriching, is that a word? Enriching. Enriching. Enriching the uh, community, both the audience and the venues. 
uh, with creative work. And in order for it to thrive, it has to figure out a way to be sustainable. Uh, and by enriching enriching the venue, I mean to say is that they are trying to find uh, spites. They're trying to create site specific performances where they're drawing attention to a venue that might not be used for performance otherwise, and maybe can use a new audience or could use some fresh you know people coming in and out of there to explore. Maybe it's a historical land site. Maybe it's like this Bohemian crematorium, crematorium. Mm-hmm. which is going into renovation. So, so where's the barber shop that they're going to do Sweeney Todd in? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and uh, thirdly, uh, the audition fee would be waived if the singer wants to bring in their own pianist, or alternatively, if they want to audition via video, uh, they can do it that way too and save themselves the cost. But then they have to hire a pianist. So, so it's going to be more expensive if they yeah. do it that way anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the bottom line is this, is that Daniel and the company have clearly thought through this, right? They have made a programming choice to include opera and musical theater folks. They have made an audition posting to include opera and musical theater folks. And so for these musical theater people to come in here and have a fit to pillory this company, to take to Facebook with this sort of bile and vitriol, which you can go out there and read, is just so despicable. They need to shut up. They need to find 15 bucks, get their parents to pay for it if they have to, and they need to show up and audition and be satisfied and, you know, join the club. Or not audition, which is also fine. Nobody's pointing a gun at your head. But don't be mean about it. Yeah. Like, calm down. Stop Just being a understand drama queen. that this is the world of the opera singer, and we hate it, but, you know, we're also the same people who will drive, you know, 100 miles to do a Messiah for 500 bucks right, you know, right. or less, yeah. you know. But, uh, you know what? If you're on our side on this case, why don't you go over to Floating Opera Company's website? I have no relationship to these people. None of us do, you actually. Know. We're not. We're and, not like, throw them five bucks this. or something like that. So maybe the next time they hold auditions, they won't have to charge. I would love that for them. You know? The other way you can be part of the conversation is to leave us a voicemail on 224 218 nine box that's two two four two one eight nine two six nine you can also tweet us at opera box score i'm sure the phone lines are going to be blazing (laughs) hashtag i stand with floco (laughs) floco this just in the two-minute drill it's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. Rolling Stone magazine has announced that an opera based on Pink Floyd's 1979 album The Wall is in the works. The collaboration is between Opera de Montreal and the band's former bassist and chief songwriter Roger Waters and will premiere at the Quebec Opera House in March 2017. From the New York Times, Lincoln Center announced on Wednesday that its Mostly Mozart Festival would mark its 50th anniversary this summer with The Illuminated Heart, a selection of scenes from Mozart operas staged by the innovative British director Nethia Jones, and will feature Christine Gerke, Anna Maria Martinez, Peter Mattei, Matthew Polanzani, and Nadine Sierra, among other notable singers. The festival's operatic theme will continue with Così Fan Tutte, conducted by Louis Langray, the festival's music director, and a Domineo, conducted by René Jacobs. Divo Nerone, and the rock opera about Roman Emperor Nero is being staged in the Real Roman Forum by Oscar-winning production designer Dante Ferretti and other heavyweights. The show is written by Grammy Award-winning lyricist Franco Migliacci. The audience will be able to see a live representation of ancient Rome catching fire with a realistic representation of the real setting of the time, boasts Italian impresario Christian Casella in Variety magazine. A section of the real Colosseum, seen at a distance amid special effects and smoke, will be part of the outdoor show's scenery. The roughly two-hour musical will have 28 scene changes and 36 musical numbers. The Austrian conductor Nikolaus Harnacourt has died at the age of 86. He was a pioneer of historically informed performances. The Kennedy Center and Washington National Opera announced that soprano Janae Brueger is the 2016 winner of the Marian Anderson Vocal Award. And the award honors trailblazing personal and humanitarian achievements. It celebrates excellence in performance by recognizing a young American singer who has achieved initial professional success in the vocal arts and who exhibits promise for a significant career. Finally, the rumors, and right now they are just rumors, are that Vancouver Opera has undergone significant budget cuts and is reducing its coming season to a total of four performances. No, not four productions, four total performances. And that's the two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. 
This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. My friends, Giovanna and Oliver, any quick takes on the two-minute drill? A couple of things. Uh, the death of Nicholas Arnoncourt uh, hit the early music community really big. Uh, I saw a lot of my friends, um, you know, posting their own tributes to him. Uh, I have conductor friends too, you know, but uh, especially us. Some of your best friends are conductors? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> especially us who, um, you know, care about uh, the advanced technology of historically informed performance. You know, he really was one of the first to document, uh, you know, the ac- uh, academia, the uh, scholarship on these things and put them into use. And we've gone way past what he's done. Actually, he seems old fashioned to us now, but if it weren't for conductors like him, we would be still in the dark ages on these things. Also, um, Renee Jacob is one of those people who is like one of the most innovative, uh, early historically informed conductor performance conductors. And the fact that he's doing, uh, this Mozart festival is awesome. I would love to go see that. Giovanna. I have two things. Shout out to Jane Bunnell, who was, uh, Janae's teacher during her time at DePaul. And the second thing is, uh, wow, Vancouver Opera, only four performances. That's absolutely crazy. But, I mean, if you have to cut costs, you know, that's the way to do it. should start charging for additions. Yeah. (laughs) For my part, I cannot wait to see the Pink Floyd, The Wall Opera. That was my favorite Pink Floyd album. I'm extremely tempted to go to Montreal, which I've never been to, actually. I hear it's a beautiful city. Oh, it's I thought it was the, whatchamacallit, Donald Trump's wall. What? (laughs) Oliver, <laughs> Oliver, you've seen more shows than I've had hot dinners, probably. <laughs> uh, what operas do you want to give us a little well, Monday a, evening quarterback? A little, I'm, I'm just going to have some quick shout outs because uh, we have another segment we want to get to soon. But uh, I made it to uh, Haymarket Opera Company's production of an oratorio. So they're doing, an, uh, they're calling it the Lenten Oratorio Series. And I think the reason why they're having to do this is because the main stage theater is doing some renovations. And it's good to keep your seasons alive when stuff like that happens to your company. So they're starting to do oratorios. They performed in two uh, separate venues, Chicago Temple and Church of the Atonement. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did Stradella, uh, Alessandro Stradella's San Giovanni Battista, which is St. John the Baptist, which is similar to many of the operas about um you know saint john getting deheaded be decapitated and uh herodias and Her- herodiad you know um so that's the gist of the story um it brought countertenor daniel bubeck to chicago i think he's a new york native and he played the role of john the baptist and he was phenomenal uh, a really beautiful um countertenor voice in the style of like the old um like kind of the english countertenors like michael chance you know like a very beautiful like I don't want to say airy sound, but like it has an ethereal quality to it. Uh, there's a lot of like humanity and, you know, like dignity in the way he sings, which is perfect for a role like John the Baptist, as opposed to a singer like David Hansen now, who like is a full blooded, like he sings, like he's singing, like, you know, Bellini or something like so that. So you're handing out A grades so far. Yeah, to no, all he's of these great. Things. But yeah. we're, another thing that happened that was amazing in this show is Ryan DeReich, who is one of the local baritones here in Chicago, uh, was the last minute substitution for uh, the bass playing the role of Herod, who um, called in sick, Jared Schwartz. So Ryan DeReich learned the role in just a couple of days. And, you know, it is a early Baroque piece, so there's lots of coloratura and whatnot, and he had to learn that stuff, and he did, he did a great job. It was an oratory. It wasn't staged, It right? wasn't staged, but, you know, in this era uh, of Italian music, uh, they did, I believe they did oratorios during Lent, uh, maybe because they're not allowed to have operas, or maybe I'm making this up, I don't know. But there was like a ban on opera. and there was like me. some There was some time when there was a ban on opera, I forget why, but like the church said, no opera, you know. I don't know if it was Lent or something else, but I probably should know the answer to that. Thanks for asking me. Uh, the uh, But no, it wasn't staged, but it's a company that is known for doing historically informed performances of Baroque operas. Staging oratorio, by the way, is absolutely the next way forward. Like, it's done fairly frequently in Europe. It's yeah. been done a little bit here in America. Did you see that uh, St. Matthew Passion completely memorized and staged? Yes. That, that was insane. Yeah. I know. I mean, it yeah. really is. There is so much mileage for directors to have out of staging yeah. oratorios. Well, and- this music is is very stageable because it really the, all the drama is there because, the, you know, you can imagine the audience was not looking at anything. So all the action had to be in the music. So it's actually very easy to stage them because they tend to be so dramatic. Uh, top honors goes 
top honors go to Sarah Garthshore, a local soprano who I've heard sing many times. Uh, she has sung a lot with Music of the Broke and some of the smaller opera companies around town. But this was the perfect vehicle for her. This role of Herodiad uh, was encyclopedic. Uh, it felt like, you know, it could be Alcina in, you know, uh, Alcina or Armida or Norma, like one of those big mm-hmm. diva roles. Uh, it has so many affectations to get through and lots of fireworks and lots of drama. And she pwned it. It was, it was amazing. I was blown away. TKO on the OBS. We are back for our TKO segment where we pick two singers that are approaching the same role and we find clips from the same parts of that role and we put them in a steel cage death match and we go head to head shirtless of course don't forget oliver wants them shirtless and we we pick a winner because america likes winners yes and uh make america great again exactly javon is going to be our judge correct (laughs) okay great. a referee yeah a referee and you and i are each going to pick a yeah so um, i'm going to set this one up you know we were talking last week about um the new opera guide and we were talking about like all the new operas and operas in english and you know Opera in English is like, it's like the new lingua franca, lingua, lingua franca of opera. And I feel like a lot of people take inspiration from, from uh, Benjamin Britten. Mm-hmm. Um, and the new voice type that these composers are writing for more often than not is the bear hunk. So many of these 21st century operas are written with the bear hunk in mind. Case in point, um, Dead Man Walking is right. a star vehicle for a bear hunk. So I thought, let's talk about the original Bear Hunk opera. Let's talk about Billy Budd. And let's talk about maybe the first Bear Hunk of them all, which is um, Nathan Gunn. That's the person I'm picking uh, okay. in, in Billy Budd. How about you? Who are you going to choose? I'm going to back Simon Keenly's side and put him in the ring. Okay. Uh, this baritone was born in London, and he has an incredible pedigree. He went to... Uh, St. John's College School, which has an amazing choir. He was at Cambridge University. He was at the Royal Northern College of Music. And oh, you know a lot about him. He has done so many roles. I think the recording of Billy Budd that I have is him yeah, singing it, actually. That's uh, Richard Hickox. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. Uh, the other Britain he's done, he's done um, Tarquinius in The Rape of Lucretia. He has, I mean, I'm trying to think of a role that the guy has not done. Well, uh, let me just give the audience a little clue that I, I kind of helped pick pick the singer. And the reason why we're pitting Simon Kinley's head against Nathan Gunn is that they have similar careers. Uh, they both are known for their work in English. They both are known for their Mozart. And they both are known for their um, abilities in song singing. So I think and, this is going to really go down to the wire, this yeah, one. Can so, you set us up for the first Yeah, round? well, a little, little bit of Nathan Gunn. I forgot to talk about him. American, uh, born in South Bend, Indiana. Hot. Uh, one of the most attractive opera singers and uh, really made a splash. Either, and he's straight. Either, and has lots of kids. Uh, either in Infagenie or um, in, um, what's his, Pearl Fishers, both operas that he sang the baritone role in shirtless. And then ever since then, all these operas were composed for him specifically so he could be shirtless. Oh, my goodness. Uh, But he is known especially for Billy Budd. And so I thought uh, he'd be the perfect person to match up. Um, We are going to listen to two different recordings. Uh, Simon Kinley's Sides was recorded in uh, the year 2000. In the year 2000. Uh, This is when Simon Kinley's Side was 41 years old with Richard Hickox. And uh, Nathan Gunn's recording came out in 2007 from a live performance at the Barbican when he was 37. The first uh, clip here, the first round of TKO, uh, is the introduction to the character Billy Budd. Uh, so um, the ship that uh, Claggart and Veer are manning uh, impresses upon ships, and then they take the crew, and then they draft them. And uh, this is a very scary moment for most people that are being drafted in this moment. But Billy Budd seems to be very happy about it. It's like, yes, you know, I got drafted in this, whatever this thing is. And uh, he's just very optimistic and cheerful, uh, sounding a little bit dumb, but naive. And at the same time, beautiful. They call him right away beauty. And then how else can you flaw somebody so beautiful in music 
uh, except particularly them as stammer. So everything that Billy Blood does is supposed to be beautiful and joyful and like very American, like wholesome. But then he has this stammer, which is his, you know, flaw for, for the listener and, you know, his flaw in the book by Herman Melville. Uh, so that all has to be conveyed within the first couple of minutes of um, the role of Billy Budd. So let's hear, we'll start with Simon Kinley's side. Your name, Billy Budd, sir. Your age, you know, sir. You know your trade, Abel Seaman. Can you read? Oh, but I can see. So this opera has no women in it, and there are lots of low yeah. male, low male. That's what I like. Lots of low male voices. So um, I should have set it up a little bit better. Uh, this is an interview between Claggart, uh, the Sergeant at Arms, and uh, and Billy Budd. And um, Claggart is played by John Tomlinson in the first recording, mm. and by Guidon Sachs in the second recording. They both sound incredibly alike. And the challenge with an opera like this, especially just listening to it, is that the voices have to be distinct. You know. And uh, that's not always possible. Like the bare hunk voice tends to be pretty monochromatic. Um, so you get a lot more on the stage. But I do think that, uh, well, I'll let you go. What do you think about Simon Kinley's side? Uh, first of all, let me just say I would kill to direct this opera. I, this is like the dream to do this in a ring cycle as a director. Like there's really nothing else to do of, of <laughs> merit. Um, I do think that. Sweeney Todd. And I've, I've already checked, I've already done Sweeney Todd, so I, that's off the list. The important part I think about the character of Billy Budd is that he has to be capable of violence. Later on in the show, he kills Claggart with a single blow to the head with his hand, and I fe- I hear that violence in Simon, uh, Simon Kinleyside's voice in a way I don't hear it in Nathan Gutt, and I think we really need to have a sense of that that danger and that threat, which is missing from your guy. 
<laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, I wasn't going to go that far. I do think that Nathan Gunn has a little more of a simplicity to his tone quality, uh, which makes him these days very hireable on Broadway. He seems to have less vibrato in the voice. Oh, don't you start again, no. <laughs> the musical theater people. No, he seems to have less vibrato in the voice, and he seems to sing a lot more forward uh, and uh, more attention to text, which makes him sound more simple, uh, in, especially in this clip. Um, and when he begins to stutter, he really does involve the, like, uh, you know, he, he mm-hmm. really goes for it. It is very convincing. I'll tip my yeah. hat to you. And it's, that. it's, that's a tricky thing to do because mm-hmm. you still have to sing. And then once he gets past that, that block, he really opens up the sound for the little song that he sings about floundering being a, a foundling, you know? What are you saying, Giovanna? Boys, I'm going to reserve my judgment <laughs> until the end. You're so coy, typical woman. All right, so round two uh, is the first time that Billy Bud really gets a chance to sing. Um, after he has accepted uh, onto this ship, uh, he sings a song uh, where he talks about himself, Billy Bud, king of the birds, king of the world. And the song eventually goes to um, a line about the rights of man, uh, which is a book, a revolutionary book by Thomas Paine. And this causes suspicion in Claggart, thinking that maybe Billy Budd is mutinous and he's going to lead the entire crew to mutiny. But he's really just naive and like silly, and he just sings that song without, with a lot of innocence, you know. Right. Uh, but here is a chance for the Billy Budd to really open up the tone and to give us more line, and to you know, uh, the orchestra begins to support him, and then the chorus begins to fill in. So you have to be able to ride over all of those things, which means more power. Who's throwing the first punch here? Uh, let's let's hear Nathan first. I'll tell you what I'm hearing from my guy, Simon, is a great... 
control of the voice, those crescendos and decrescendos are really so synthesized with the orchestra. He's very much in tune, not just in terms of pitch, of course, which we would expect, but really in terms of the feeling and the drive of what the orchestra represents here, which is the ocean, which is the seascape, which is the chorus as well. And I think that's really important to have that emotional sense of, of driving, and I'm hearing it in his voice. Well, let's remember that uh, Nathan Gunn's recording was actually recorded in a live performance, and you hear Nathan Gunn pushing himself. Like, he really wants to give as much as he can. And I will say that Nathan Gunn has never really been known for having this booming sound. He's more of, like, a comedic singer, you know, that can sing. He can sing a line. He can sing lyrically and beautifully, but he's not the type of person you would put in Verity, you know? Right. And this is him really giving the audience... uh, all of his tone. It's very generous. It does go to the edge, you know, but um, I, I hear the, the waves crashing, you know, I hear the chorus being uplifted by it. And I just feel like, you know, you get excited and sometimes you shout a little bit. <laughs> Giovanna. I'm going to stay until the end. I have very strong opinions. All right. Well, here we go. This is going to be the decider. I, I, I can tell it's going to go the full distance. So we are in the third round and um, I would love to have played for you the scene where, um, Billy kills Claggart, but probably the most important moment of uh, the role is the final scene, Billy and the Darbies, uh, where he's been sentenced to death and he's alone. And he's not very eloquent when he's talking uh, to people, uh, to his colleagues, to his shipmates. But when he's alone, he suddenly becomes poetic. And this is his sort of farewell to life. And it's one of the most heartbreaking scenes in all of opera, let alone a Britain opera. And um, yeah, the the text is so beautiful, and the orchestration is so austere, and a great baritone has to seize the moment and be intimate and to give color to these words. And this is where the skill of a leader singer really comes in, and that's why people who have sung leader have really uh, succeeded in this role. And I have to say that, like, well, we'll hear. We'll, we'll hear the, the clip. We're going to hear just the first third of this, of this aria. Um, listen for uh, the flute, which sort of is like suggesting the air or maybe like a little bird that's flying around and you hear the cellos undulating, which feel like gentle waves. Uh, It is such a beautiful moment in the show. And my guy Simon is going to go first. Yes. Thank you. 
I love both of these singers very much, but it's so clear to me that Simon Kinley's side um, is just heavy handed in that, like it's not intimate, it's operatic. And yes, there are going to be phrases in that scene where you're going to bring in your, your full vibrato, your full legato, but this is somebody alone, you know, who's talking to himself and, you know, it's, it should be melancholy and it should be, it should be an uh, introspective, you know? And Simon Kinney says just too extroverted in it. And Nathan Gunn, with his more simple tone quality and with more kind of choral consonants, you know, really gives the feeling of quiet, you know. And, uh, I mean, it was a live recording. Again, maybe he was just really in the moment, is in the zone. It might be hard to get in the zone for the studio. But, uh, you know, Simon Kinney had many advantages to take it to another take, for example, you know. It's true, I, but I heard some of that nuance. You know, there's that flute obbligato, I guess yeah. would be the fancy word for it. Uh, I felt like Simon is really in tandem with that. It's, it's very delicate singing, not all the time, but for large parts of that. And I think that's uh, uh, of value. Giovanna, it's over to you to lift a winner's arm. Who's it going to be well, and why? I'm torn on this one because if it were all about vocal quality and really interesting sound and expression, Simon would win. But because of the nature of Billy Budd's character, I have to give this to Nathan Gunn. Yes! Simply because <laughs> simply because he, he personifies the the naivete that Billy Budd has and the kind of the simplistic manner. And optimism, you know. Yeah, and just It's very, something very American about Nathan is, Gunn. And yeah. it's an American story. It's a British composer, yes, but it's an American I, story. I disagree 100%. It's a British story. So to have an American singing <laughs> makes no sense to Oh, me. really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I lost Herman this Melville time, is not American? Oliver. Well, this is true. Yeah, mm. no, you're right. Melville mm. is American. So mm. it is a bit cross-pollinated yeah. in that I, regard. I also realized that you, lo- you lost last time, George, and I just want you to know that this has nothing to do against you and that I, my, my affection for you has not changed. Uh, Oliver just picks better people. Uh, I just think maybe Nathan Gunn looks better with his shirt off, too. And, like, the Billy and the Darby scene is a great chance to have Billy in his underwear. They should call it that, Billy in his underwear scene. We'll turn it over to our listeners. If you want to have your say, you can leave us a message, 224-218-9box. Again, 224-218-9269. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. Hit up our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. Send us a message. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. Let's go inside the huddle. So this week we are adding to our podcast uh, an interview with Catherine O'Shaughnessy uh, after this uh, explosion of commentary about uh, whether floating opera companies should be charging 15 bucks 
I thought I would call her up and she just so happened to have an hour free today. So she came over and was really gracious and I just met her um, today and it ended up being a really nice interview. She talks about what it's like to be, you know, a young conductor starting opera companies, what the expenses are, um, you know, what her love is and how she's trying to, you know, develop singers. And it's great. I mean, like, I was really happy that this happened. So are you suggesting that um, you are new to Floating Opera Company as well? I am, yes. Right, so, so tell me what you understand about Floating Opera Company. And what, did you do the cozy? No, I didn't. Okay. I saw the cozy. Okay. Are you now the musical director of Floating Opera Company? or I don't know if it's an official long-term title. I'm certainly okay. doing I did Giovanni, and I will be doing Sweeney Todd in the fall. Um, and we'll see how it keeps going from there. Uh, okay. It's certainly a company I like working with. Okay, so then that means that the other company, Windy City, is the one that you started? That's mine. Okay, That's so are, who is your like partner in that company? Or is it just I all really you? I have a partner in crime. <laughs> um, I, I'm certainly very grateful to lots of people who have contributed yeah. time and hours and efforts and props from their closets. Um, yeah. But it's basically, we, we keep things very small scale, and I'm doing it a lot by myself. Tell me what you think about the whole um, resurgence of micro opera companies here in the city. I think it's just so fantastic. There's so much talent that really you can do anything. You do have to carve out a niche of what every particular company is. So yeah. with Windy City Opera, since I'm a musician first and mm -hmm. foremost, that's, I've done some stage acting. I've been in operas on occasion. But really, my specialty is the musical side of things. And that's what we focus on. We, we brought it with orchestra, and as you said, original language. Because people come to me and they say, well, your, your Pasquale might work better in English. And it might. But the important thing is that this be a great experience for everyone involved, that everyone's getting something out of it. And singers being able to put the original role in the original language on their resume really makes a difference. Um, so I've trained some in Germany and in Italy and those places, and I want to bring some of that and make the best musical experience that's possible. Um, floating opera is more about the, the engagement with the venues as well as to offering a touring production every year for smaller theaters in the area. Um, so, for instance, last year they did Cozy, and they did it in Bridgeport Arts Center, amongst other places, and which is a great venue for their kind of Mario-style mm -hmm. uh, theme. And then they were able to take that on tour in Wisconsin and I think other places as well. Um, this year, Don Giovanni will be the touring production. Um, the same one that I saw? Yes, okay. well, and, and we already have some, a few things, I think, in the works for the fall on that mm -hmm. front. Um, but we did that in the crematorium because it seems like the perfect place to call up the spirit. You know? Yeah. And um, the other really beautiful thing was that some of the proceeds from that went to support the restoration of the venue. Okay. So we've been working with Landmarks Illinois to find various places that we can have that kind of collaboration. Um, so I'm a big like repertoire person, mm -hmm. and um, I love many genres, but I, I would say that I have a very specific skill in smaller range repertoire. Mm -hmm. What do you feel is your like passionate era, your passionate genre? And does that, you know, coincide with the talent you're able to find here in Chicago to put on those projects? I mean, you did Bohem, you did Don Giovanni, you did Don Pasquale. So there's already like some bel canto in there. There's some, right. you know, early Verismo and then uh, Mozart, you know, right. which there's a through line through that. But you know, <laughs> is there something that we're going to see in the future with your projects? Well, yes and no. I think of repertoire as being like having a balanced diet. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you do too much of one thing, you become embedded in that one thing. And mm -hmm. after doing uh, Bohem, I went and did Don Giovanni in Italy this summer, and I was finding it so hard to make the transition from Puccini into Mozart because i just done too much Puccini lately. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's very important that you have a little bit of everything to, to season, your, season your diet. Um, that being said, I'm very drawn to Puccini. I find it very natural. It's, it's much easier for me to conduct, despite all, all the flowingness of it, be, but because it's so elastic, I'm able to, to push and pull and flex with my singers very freely. I love that feeling. Um, How would you just, because this is something that I think is really important for singers to hear, and that's most of our audience. How would you distinguish the style of Puccini Bel Canto and Mozart, like what singers oh need to goodness. do and what, <laughs> and what you need to do to help them, but how they need to prepare. Yeah, that's a tough question, right? That is a really huge <laughs> well, you already, question. Well, you oh already goodness. started with Puccini being, being elastic, which I <laughs> right. like to hear that. Right. And I do think that, uh, you know, Puccini is really great at giving you little moments, like little phrases that are feel very real if you do them in the way you would say them. But right. then there are phrases that suddenly become lyrical and you want to stretch them out because the, the poetry changes or because the sentiment changes and it becomes very right. clear in the orchestra. 
but you don't have that luxury in right. Mozart. But you sort of have that luxury in Bel Canto. You in sort of do, although it's not about the text as much in Bel Canto. It's very much though about what's comfortable in the voice. And you know, Puccini very he dictated very carefully exactly when to push and pull. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean Donatelli didn't, and that doesn't mean that Donatelli you don't push and pull. It mm-hmm. just means that it's supposed to be so obvious based on what's comfortable for the singer. Yeah. And um, that's kind of what Puccini was reacting against when he went more in the Verismo direction. Yeah. It was like, there's a, that's right, but only to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, I, I was very lucky. With Puccini, it, text is so important. I was mm-hmm. very lucky this last summer to um, study Madame Butterfly with Maurizio Reina in, uh, in Italy. And I learned so much about vocal coaching from him because every time there was a problem with whether it be pitch or rhythm or any number of things, he would always go to the text. And he could fix all of those problems by mm. going to the text. And that's really what I think is the heart and soul of what Puccini does. It's so much about that. that so if, advice to singers, especially in Puccini, know the text, know the rhythms of the language, because then the rest actually just kind of falls into place. Okay. Um, if I said Belcanto, just know the tendencies of your own voice yeah. <laughs> and don't be afraid of them. That's the thing. We, I think when we do Mozart, there is, there, you know, it's a little more rigid and there is definitely a question of what is tasteful and what is not. And singers are trained not to overdo it, mm-hmm. especially I think in, in like big city American culture, we're thinking about doing the, the next audition and we don't want to be over the top. But Belcanto is when that happens. That's when that's, that's the, the repertoire that gave the, the, opera field the the reputation for being so elastic and serving the voice is bel canto and so i i often find singers that sing straight through a bar and i'm like aren't you going to take time there wouldn't it feel good to take time yeah. there i think you're going to take time i'm so there. glad you said that because you need to give singers permission and right this is something that as a singer um we learn oh to be um kind of self-conscious and to, right. and to not have confidence about our own musicianship and that, you know, we are always the dumbest person in the room and like, you know, trust the conductor or, or trust this coach or, you know, mm-hmm. trust this, you know, oboe player who's giving you a dirty look, you know, right. like there's so much of that, um, you know, this business kind of relies on singers not having enough pride in what they do. Right. And that's why they pay for auditions and that's why they will go drive across the state to make 200 bucks to sing a Messiah, you know, it's like. It's all because they want that ver- that validation. You know? And the so. irony is, of course, that the reputation is the diva opera singer yeah. who always wants it to be their way. And, I, you know, I've encountered very few of those. I won't say mm. none, but yeah. very few people who, who who will go beyond, just you know, beyond taste. Well, just we're also own. taught that, you know, how we work with other people is really important and we have to maintain a reputation. And that's why... Right. I think there are some people who have a very public figure who are so saccharine right. and you can't believe that that person really is that way. Yeah. And maybe it turns out that they are that way, but yeah. I'm always a little bit I, skeptical of those. <laughs> yeah. those people. Um, but actually, and then it's interesting that you bring up this, this issue of singers not feeling confident in musicianship mm-hmm. because that actually plays right into what Windy City Opera is trying to do. Um, because it is a very small scale, very collaborative situation, um, it's all about finding... I try to bring people in who are already artists who I want them to bring something to the table too. I want to see what we create together. So that's why in this production, we didn't have a stage director. I knew I had people with great stage sense and, uh, you know, I had people out in the audience who could give me a couple eyes in the rehearsal yeah. you know, say, Hey, that doesn't quite work. But, um, so we certainly weren't without coaching, but, um, it's all about trusting your own musicianship because in, of course, when you get into the, the real field, rehearsal time is often very tight and it is all, a lot about what you bring to the table already before you go into rehearsal you don't wait for the conductor to tell you something or the director to tell you something and um so that's what i'm actually trying to nourish with windy city opera is that idea that we already have it and we already have this we have the love we have the passion and the artistry and we just need to come together and see what can be made mm-hmm. so what projects do you have on your horizon well, I will say I'm 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 already quite booked up for, with uh, several things in the fall. Um, which, so Windy City Opera might be a, take a little bit of a hiatus <laughs> temporarily. Yeah. Um, I would like to do a small like project with Windy City Opera to reach out into interdisciplinary stuff. Because as I was just saying, it's about bringing the right people together for the opera. But I'm also thinking about I have a lot of friends in the philosophy community here and in the arts community. I'm thinking about some sort of event that ties together visual arts philosophy discussion mm-hmm. and a performance of some music at the end and uh, so that's that's probably on the docket in the fall um 
something mm-hmm. like in the form of like a lecture recital or actual like something like, like that performance integrated with with music maybe happening simultaneously you know i'm still in the burbling stages um but i lean more in the latter direction i want something that really integrates things as much as possible rather than it's certainly not going to be i don't want to just have somebody come in and talk about the philosophy of the music we're performing but also bring i want to rather have people from the philosophy field bring in something that relates and that maybe we wouldn't have thought of relating okay um that's you know it's all about getting the right people in the room to make that happen um and then also, you know, Verismo Opera is actually burbling about coming back with a Carmen in September. Oh, yeah. So we're Bradley talking, Schuller's group. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. right. Um, we're talking about that. I don't know exactly how it'll come together, but keep your eyes open for it. Um, of course, and Sweeney Todd. Yeah. <laughs> so lots and lots on the docket. And then I'll definitely be doing a show with Windy City again in the spring. Okay. Yeah. Um, so do you care to comment on this whole kerfuffle with uh, Floating Opera posting on a music theater website? It is, it's a difficult spot. First of yeah. all, I want to start by saying I, I do find it somewhat tragic that there is such a divide between the music theater and the opera communities because there are so many works like Sweeney Todd, like Porgy and Bess, that really benefit from there being a, middle, a little more middle ground. And the singers that I know who have trained in both opera and music theater are often the ones who are bringing the most to the table. And so I wish that there were less of a conflict there in the first place. Um, when it comes to audition fees, I really see it both ways. Um, well, as somebody who's produ- self-producing, exactly. yeah. As someone who self-produces, I understand that they're like when you when you get a lot of audition applications and you have to pay for auditions, you have to pay for a venue for three days, and you have to pay a pianist to be there. Like it's not free, and when you're working on this kind of tiny budget, that could be a third of the budget for a production, and so the way Windy City Opera does this, it's not necessarily a better solution, but it's it's just the solution I chose because I didn't want to charge audition fees. Is I put out a casting notice and asked for videos and recordings, and, mm-hmm. and I make my decision off of that. And I have been occasionally will meet with somebody live if I need to hear a little more, but more or less we, I do it blind, and I've been very lucky that way. But that also selects for the people who have already had the money invested in getting those materials to send me. And not everybody has those. And I feel like I, there's probably a lot of talent I'm missing out on because I don't hold auditions and charge an audition fee. So it's kind of, um, you know, it's a difficult situation, and all the solutions that are found are valid, I think. Um, I will say that, you know, Floating Opera Company is definitely not charging more than what it's costing to do this. And You're not trying to make money off right. of the singers. Yeah, that's um, very clear. I think... So. I think I, of course, would need to verify with Dan, but what we were thinking was something on the lines of a pianist fee, because we do pay that pianist for the hours that they're there. And if somebody brings their own pianist, then we can schedule them at the end of the day and let the pianist go early, and then we don't then incur those fees. So there's, I'm sure there's some sort of middle ground that can be reached. Um, it's just a difficult thing, though, because it's, in order to make these productions happen, companies and singers and performers, they all have to come together. And recognize that it's not one group trying to take advantage of the other. Like we're we are in this together to create opportunities for ourselves and art for the audiences, and that's the number one important thing. I think of a company like Windy City Opera giving the equivalent experience of a young artist program in a very condensed amount of time, very and people have, people have people <laughs> no problem paying young artists pay to sings. You know, like right. doing these month long programs where they're also paying for their housing, they're paying for whatever their food and right. and on top of the application fee and whatnot. And so. that's one reason I started Windy City Opera because I've seen those young artist programs and I think it's such a crime. It may, really makes it so that only people who already have means can succeed in the field. I don't want that to be the case. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's why, I mean, that's why I wanted to start this opera company. I looked at the numbers and I realized like for La Boheme, we pretty much ticket sales pretty much broke even. I had a few donations from mm-hmm. ticket, ticket sales and that made it so that, yes, I had people who flew in and, we put up my, I put up Mammy Me and our Marcello put up Rodolfo. Yeah. So they weren't paying for housing. Yeah. Um, they did pay to come in, but they, none of that money went to me. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's certainly a lot cheaper than a pay to sing. And the people we have are people who can be singing these roles professionally and should be and should not be paying thousands of dollars to do so. I think most opera goers do not realize what it's like for opera nope. singers to get this experience. <laughs> nope. And when you're in a place like Chicago where it's possible to do something on the small scale and make these opportunities available, why not do it that way rather than go, go abroad, pay thousands of dollars, pay the housing, as you yeah. said? 
you know. Get syphilis, you know. <laughs> well, I have, I have to that on my to-do list, but it hasn't been checked off yet. So. But now it's bed bugs you got to worry about with those young I was going to say, isn't that Candide yeah. <laughs> where there would be syphilis? You know, if you are a young singer out there that is in Chicago looking for some experience, uh, you know, cough up the $15 and sing for Kathy because <laughs> uh, she's going places and she has the skills to put her her money where her mouth is or your money where her <laughs> mouth is thank you so much for coming on the show um it was really nice to meet you likewise it's been a pleasure good call bad call on opera box score Uh, we are here at the very end. Man, it has gone fast. This has just been a crazy mm. fast week. Good call, bad call when we try and find something that's been fantastic in the world of opera this week or something dreadful and lousy. And, Giovanna, you get to go first. I'm so glad I get to go first. Um, well, he just asked me not to give his name with this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Oliver Camacho created this wonderful thing called Vocal Arts Chicago, which is a main place resource to find what's going on in Chicago, maybe where to audition, what to go see. Um, if you, it's, it's going to be a really, really big and great database. Uh, if you have a moment, which I know you do because it'll take less than a second, go to Facebook and type in Vocal Arts Chicago and go ahead and give them a like. Like it, yes. And also go to VocalArtsChicago.com, the actual Vocal Arts Chicago website. But you can find it through Facebook. Fantastic. Thanks. Uh, Molly, I have, I have a couple of good calls. Um, Eric Cutler is replacing Josef Kalea in Romeo and Juliet, and I hope that it improves um, <laughs> what people are saying about Romeo and Juliet. I'm going on Friday. Delicately put. Yes. Um, on the 14th, uh, Lyric Unlimited uh, does the next in their series of uh, Beyond the Aria uh, concerts. Uh, this one will feature Susanna Phillips, Christian Van Horn, and Mingji Lee. Mingji Lei. Uh, I think Craig Terry is a pianist for this, um, but uh, I love this idea of giving uh, opera singers a chance to do, you know, some arias in concert, but also maybe show off some of their song repertoire and whatnot. And finally, uh, this Friday, um, the Chicago Bach Project returns, and it's not really an operatic topic, but Daniel Okudlich, who is one of the most hunky of Barahunks, is uh, singing the, the bass solo in the B minor mass uh, Chicago Bach Project. I will unfortunately miss all these things for my own good call, which is on Sunday I head to Germany after a four-year absence. I'm returning there for a three-week period. The Svaterland. <laughs> the Svaterland, exactly. On a research grant, I will be meeting with artistic directors. I will be seeing shows, watching rehearsals, and, of course, interviewing folks and documenting the whole thing. It's going to launch our three-part series on opera in Germany. You're going to want to make sure that you're ready to hear those podcasts. That oh, come that's Giovanna's and my bad call that we're not on the show for the next three weeks. Well, <laughs> what you guys true. don't know is Oliver and I are actually going to Tahiti for three weeks while George is gone. So we're having a little getaway. And right we're starting our own uh, Opera Tahiti podcast. Yeah. <laughs> What's the scene like in the islands? Well, that's it for our podcast. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. At WNUR, our programming director is Bill Shonay, and the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. However you listen to our podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave comments, reviews, and those cute little stars. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. I guarantee you, nobody else has that handle. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com and suggest a talk chalk segment. What topic would you like to weigh in on? Or suggest a TKO matchup. Which two opera singers do you want to see duke it out? On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can stream archived episodes and learn more about our team. The whole team is back on April 4th. In the meantime, you can follow my adventures in Germany by listening to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to keep the conversation about opera going in as polite and articulate way as you possibly can. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR.